0: Frank's caught between these two guys who he's indebted to and has to make a terrible decision. And uh, I think Frank had this thing he was trying to unload, the guilt that he felt about what he had done, that played on him. It ate at him, and he was, uh, you know, he was looking for absolution.
1: Frank Sheeran was always looking for a way out. At first, he was a small-time grifter, truck driver who ended up catching the eye of the Buffalinos, Philadelphia's organized crime family. He liked to drink, he kept his mouth shut, and above all was a reliable assassin. They took him in, called him the Irishman. But Frank had another side. In public, he was high up in the Teamsters, the most powerful union in America. There, he was the right-hand man to the big guy, Jimmy Hoffa, the president of the Teamsters Union. This guy was a larger-than-life figure who fought for the little guys, like him. And Frank and Jimmy, man, they were thick as thieves. Until one day, Hoffa vanished. His body never found. Now, there's been millions of theories about what happened to Hoffa, But according to Frank's deathbed confession, Hoffa died in the suburbs of Detroit. On the wrong end of Sheeran's gun. The Irishman, the latest movie from Martin Scorsese, recounts Frank's story in all its vivid color and chaos. Now to pull this off, Scorsese recruited the heaviest of hitters, Robert De Niro. Al Pacino and Joe Pesci and pioneered groundbreaking de-aging technology to take the audience through the many stages of these complicated characters' lives. This is Behind the Irishman, the official companion podcast from Netflix. Now we're gonna explore the life of the real Frank Sheeran, how his story found its way into Scorsese's hands, and how he crafted Frank's version of events into a decade-spanning cinematic masterpiece. I'm Sebastian Maniscalco. I play Crazy Joe Gallo a notorious New York gangster, and the victim of a brutal gangland assassination. Spoiler alert, if you haven't seen The Irishman yet, now would be a good time to go watch it. Frank kept his mouth shut for a long time, but in this episode, we'll meet the guy Frank spilled his guts to. Charlie Brant.
2: I get a call from a guy named Franny McDonnell
1: on behalf of the Philly mob to get Frank Sheeran out of jail. He was put away in 87 for labor racketeering with a 32-year sentence. I'm a
2: retired chief deputy attorney general of the state of Delaware and I got him out. That's when Charlie figures out why Frank chose him. Frank took me aside and told me that he had read my book in jail called The Right to Remain Silent. It's a novel but it's based on homicides that I solved through interrogation. He wanted me to write a book for him because at that point there were six books and they all had him in the matter,
1: as he would call it. Frank's name had a way of popping up in association with Hoffa's disappearance. He wanted to set the record straight. You gotta remember at that point, nobody had any idea how Hoffa died. So
0: I thought, well, I'll meet with him. And it was just Frank and me against the world. Charlie had a way of doing it. I get confessions out of people the way I understand. And that takes a certain knack, a certain sensitivity. You guys know that voice. Robert De Niro. He plays the title character. you got to make the person trust you and genuinely trust you because you have something coming out of you that's genuine. And even if you're doing another job that has another agenda, you still moment to moment, are interacting with that person in a way that's real and, and sincere. And the guilt that he felt about what he had done had probably added to it,
1: and he was, uh, you know, he was beyond upset. De Niro connected deeply with Frank's character and pitched the story to Scorsese. Marty remembers the meeting like this.
3: He came in and he described this book to me. He described really this character of Frank Sheeran. And as he did, he became very emotional about it. And I realized that was the connection. And there was, use the word gold in a way. We know each other kind of so well that we don't have to say anything at that point. I know if he could tap into that character that way, based on the structure of the story and the situation these people found themselves in,
2: I
1: know I could go there. Now for Charlie, this movie captures Frank perfectly.
2: We were very, very close That's part of what you do. And there was genuine feeling there between the two of us and, That feeling, I I got that from Bob De Niro. I'm sitting there thinking, oh my God, this is just how I felt with Frank Sheeran. This
1: desire to talk, but fear, he had some fear going on. When Charlie saw the first scene in the movie, it took him right back.
2: My wife and I looked at each other absolutely floored because we, we saw him a lot in the nursing home. I was with him during his aging years. It was there that Charlie got to know Frank. The interrogator encourages the feeling that you're feeling better. You
1: talk about this and you're getting it out of your system. The first time they sat down, Frank only confessed to being part of the conspiracy. He admitted to being guilty. He
2: admitted to being there when someone else pulled the trigger and there for the purpose of Hoffa's assassination. So technically, any law school student would say, okay, you're guilty of the crime. You're there, you're part of the conspiracy. But he hadn't yet told me that uh, he had pulled the trigger. It was hard for him to express that. And I reached a point in questioning him where, where I knew that he had done it. He had killed Hoffa. But he wasn't yet ready to say, I am the one who pulled the trigger. And I knew I'd get it the next time.
1: But when he hands Frank the first draft, everything grinds to a halt. And he said, you, you can't write this stuff. Russell Buffalino's still
2: alive. All these various people that he mentioned were still alive. And he said, they're not pussycats either.
1: Now, they didn't talk for eight years. He would call the office
2: every once in a while. He'd try to get through to me, but I was staying, for self-preservation, I was staying far away from him. Well, Frank's guilt
1: continued to grow.
2: He'd been to a priest, he confessed to all his sins, but he didn't have to give names, so he didn't have to say more than I committed murder. And then we spent uh, the next five years together with me, bringing him out, little by little by little. and initially he was doing it to please his daughter so that he could be buried in a catholic cemetery but i was careful not to let anyone know that frank was serially confessing to me confession after confession after confession
1: frank was born in south philly a notorious rough and tumble neighborhood in 1920.
2: he was a huckleberry finn kind of philadelphia guy a prankster more than anything with the rest of the guys in philly
1: when he's old enough He joins the
2: military and he gets out. He was assigned initially to be a paratrooper until he broke his shoulder. And then they put him in the military police. Then came Pearl Harbor and he asked for combat, volunteered for it. And in those days, you could get it if you volunteered for it.
1: He gets assigned to the 45th Infantry Division. He was in three amphibious invasions,
2: Salerno, Anzio, and southern France. The unit he was in, it was given the assignment by Patton to be my killer division. Patton gave two speeches to that division and explained to them that uh, they don't understand German. And so when a prisoner tries to surrender, how do you know what he's saying to you? You
1: need to kill him. During World War II, the average GI saw 80 days of active combat. Frank saw 411. He learns to kill without remorse.
2: He would be told, take this prisoner behind the line for questioning. He would take the prisoner behind the line for questioning. If the lieutenant added the words and hurry back, that meant take him behind the line, kill him and get your ass back here. So he learned uh, a lot about combat. And he takes every opportunity to indulge in extracurricular activities. He liked to party, he liked to drink red wine, he liked the Italian women. He explained to me that you could go AWOL as long as your unit had not moved up to the front. If your unit had moved up to the front and you weren't with your unit, your lieutenant could kill you. He would get back in time for his unit to move on, and so he never really got in trouble. He knew how to play the angles and he lost what we all call a moral compass in the war. You want something, you just took it. There was no such thing as stealing. Whatever you wanted, you took. Now after the war, he returns to Philly, a very different man. And he said, we didn't have traumatic syndrome, as he would call it. We didn't have traumatic syndrome then. You'd wake up in the middle of the night wondering what you were doing in a bed because you'd slept so long on the ground for so many years. And then sometimes things from the past
1: in the war would merge into things from my my life. But he sucks it up. Eventually, he gets married, finds a job as a truck driver. That's how he ended up joining the Teamsters Union initially. He got a job as a truck
2: driver, and he was taught by the old timers who worked there how to steal sides of beef, how to steal chickens and resell them. And so he was hustling at that time. Those days, everyone stole at work, including me, whether it was stamps or whatever you get your hands on. Then one day, he was driving his truck, and his horse, as they call the truck, broke down. He was trying to get it started. And this uh, older, short Italian guy came over to him and said, uh, can I give you a hand, kiddo? And Frank
1: said, sure. It was Russell Buffalino. Russell Buffalino, played by Joe Pesci, was the head of the Buffalino crime family, a small but influential outfit out of Pennsylvania. Scorsese describes Russell's relationship with Frank like this.
3: It's uh, Russell Buffalino who takes him under his wing in his syndicate, so to speak, you know, the part of the organized crime northeast of uh, America, uh, Philadelphia, Pittsburgh.
1: Here's Charlie again. It was Russell Buffalino,
2: a man who owned a drapery store in a small town called Pittston, Pennsylvania. You could go to him to get your car fixed. He was a master mechanic for the Canada Dry Corporation. You, you could also go to him to get Castro whacked
1: and so Frank quickly falls in with Russell's crew.
2: Russell asked him where he hung out in Philly. The next thing you know, Frank sees Russell at Frank's hangouts in Philly. And then Frank gets invited to come to their hangouts. As a boy, he lived in Italian neighborhoods. Then when he went overseas, He was in all the campaigns in Italy, and uh, he picked up some Italian there, and so he he spoke Italian, and he was able to speak Italian to Russell. Russell was very impressed with Frank's
1: uh, abilities. For the first time since the war, Frank finds a real connection with someone. Scorsese explains it this way.
3: This character, Frank, finding himself in that kind of extended family, a man coming out of World War II, finds himself in a world he understands that he's he's already died a few times and what's left living for. He's got a family, does his best with them, has to earn money, has no education. And he falls in with these people who um, appreciate him and he, they, they actually love each other.
1: Frank revealed to Charlie how he earned his stripes in the family. He goes
2: to work for but Skinny Razor, the Friendly Lounge, which is the mob hangout.
1: And those are the ones that would give him our jobs. He proves reliable, always gets the job done, and he starts to get noticed. Eventually, a patron of the friendly lounge named Whispers DiTulio recruits Frank to handle a big job with a big payday. Whispers talks to Frank
2: about a job he wants him to do. He wants him to torch a linen service called Cadillac Linen Service in Delaware, and uh, he will get paid $10,000. 2000 down, the other 8000 when the job is completed, but, said Whispers, you can't tell anyone what I just said to you, ever. This is between you and me, but it's an opportunity for you to start making some decent money around here instead of this $100 this and $50 that. Sheeran then took the job, took the 2000 in cash, and uh, visited the Cadillac Linen Service to case it from the outside. It was in Delaware, and he's got Pennsylvania license plates. And so the Cadillac people see this giant of a man looking at their business from across the street. The next thing that happens to Frank is he's told by Skinny Razor that Angelo wants to see him, Angelo Bruno.
1: Angelo Bruno, played by Harvey Keitel, was the head of Philadelphia Organized Crime. So
2: Skinny Razor goes in the back room and Angelo's
1: sitting there with Russell
2: Buffalino. And Angelo says, what were you doing at the Cadillac Linen?" and Russell tells Frank, now's not the time to remain silent, tell the man. Frank
1: spills everything. He soon finds out the real owner of the Cadillac Linen Service was sitting right in front of him, Angelo Bruno. He was ordered
2: by Russell Buffalino and Angelo to take care of whispers. In other words, take this man behind the line for questioning and hurry back. And so that's the first one that he kills in America. And anyone would say Whispers had it coming because Whispers would have, it was explained to Frank by uh, Russell and, and Angelo, Whispers would have let you hang out to dry and you'd have been killed. Instead now, you've got to kill him. So that was his first hit.
1: The hit proves Frank's loyalty to the organization and to Russell.
2: From then on, he said, I got a different kind of respect. There were no charges for the drinks and now he was available to kill people for Russell. He said to me, a lot of people think that Angelo lent me out to Russell. It was the other way around. Russell lent me out to Angelo and that was to kill people for Angelo, for Skinny Razor, for whoever needed him. And one day he was talking to Skinny Razor who said to him, you know, they should be doing more for you because you don't get paid for those murders. You just do them as a sign of respect and you're hoping for some break, you know, along the line. So he said, I'd like to get into union work.
1: I mean, a union job was something Russell could easily provide. Frank's relationship to the Buffalinos, his reputation as a trusted hitman, and his devotion to the union earned him an introduction to Jimmy Hoffa, president of the Teamsters and the most powerful union leader in all of American history.
2: Frank is sitting at a table and Russell gets a phone call. Russell brings the phone over to Frank and says, say hello to your boss, Jimmy Hoffa. And Jimmy Hoffa says to him. Is that
0: Frank? Yes. Hiya Frank, this is Jimmy Hoffa. Yeah, yeah. Glad to meet you. Well, glad to meet you too. Even if it's over the phone, I heard you paint houses. Yes, yes, sir, I I do, I do, and I I also do my own carpentry.
2: And that means that he gets rid of the bodies uh, as well as killing them. Within a couple of days, Frank was in Detroit doing killings for Hoffa, and so now he was an official hitman for Hoffa
1: and for Russell. Hoffa was known for wheeling and dealing doing business with organized crime while amassing power for the union. Here's Erwin Winkler, one of the producers of The Irishman.
4: Pop ran this incredible fund that uh, the Teamsters had amassed and then invested it in all kinds of schemes, uh, most of which turned out to be pretty
1: successful for the Teamsters. These guys used the Teamsters' billion-dollar pension like their own personal piggy bank. In exchange, labor leaders got muscle and their own piece of the action. You could get in your head
2: that you wanted to build a casino in this new place called Las Vegas, and you're a mobster in um, Chicago, Sam Giancana, let's say, Momo. You could go to Alan Dorfman, Alan Dorfman was in charge of the Teamsters $1 billion, which was a lot of money in those days, pension fund. And you could decide that I'm gonna borrow money from the pension fund to build a casino. You go to Pittston, Pennsylvania to speak to Russell. You tell Russell what you're doing. Russell tells you how much to borrow, and Russell gets 10% kickback. Russell
1: splits that kickback with Jimmy. To see the results of this arrangement between the Teamsters, guys like Russell, And Vegas? Check out Scorsese's 1995 masterpiece, Casino.
2: All of a sudden, you've got Las Vegas, and it's built on Teamsters' pension fund money. And the Teamsters, they're getting killers. They're getting uh, pieces of the action under the table. And so Jimmy put a lot of it to good use. Jimmy always had cash in his pocket and needy uh, union men would would be the recipient of, of handfuls of cash.
1: Hoffa was like Elvis and the Beatles combined. He was a hero to every guy in America who wore a hard hat or punched a clock. To fill such big shoes, they tapped one of the all-time greats, Al Pacino. He sat down with Scorsese, De Niro, and Pesci to discuss his character, Jimmy Hoffa.
3: Jimmy, Jimmy Hoffa was most popular second to the president at that time.
1: He gave these guys someone to root for because he was on their side. Here's Scorsese.
3: And you forget about the unions and what it took to get working guys Mm. a good, a decent
1: pay. Once again, producer Erwin Winkler. Well, I think Hoffa was a
4: really, really probably the most important individual in the American labor movement. He was the epitome of a, a labor leader. He he ran with an iron hand. Weller Teamsters, team
1: one of the most important labor unions in the world. In Charlie Brandt's opinion, history would have played out much differently if Hoffa hadn't disappeared. Hoffa was, yeah, a
2: superstar of, of labor and of all social issues. There would be no discussion of, of of healthcare right now, if Hoffa had survived. He would have handled health care for the masses a long time ago. He delivered to the men and women that were in his union. He believed in it when he talks about solidarity.
0: Big business
3: and the government are trying to sow the seeds of dissent among our ranks. At a time when we need unity, we need solidarity. I want to write it in the sky, solidarity.
0: Solidarity!
2: Solidarity! He really did believe in it, and he made Frank a believer. In those days, the most prominent voice that you would hear was Elvis Presley's. You couldn't, you couldn't not know it was Elvis. Well, that was the effect that Jimmy Hoffa had on, on listeners. These days, what does a union leader mean? This is going to be a baseball strike. In the age of Jimmy Hoffa, there were a number of famous union leaders, but none of them with the fame of a Jimmy Hoffa. For Pacino,
1: Hoffa has always been a known entity.
0: Throughout my young life, I knew of him, because he was well-known. He was very well-known, and, and people talked about him. As a matter of
3: fact, he was uh, like a household name. We you know he was the head of unions, and there was something about him that was shady or whatever. He was always being
1: accused. This is the kind of guy he was. That's interesting. Now, Frank gets installed as Hoffa's personal bodyguard and travel companion. Over time, he becomes Hoffa's confidant.
3: Bofolino introduces him to a man he respects and loves, who's out, uh, Jimmy Hoffa. He becomes a great friend, cohort, trusted man, and appreciated
1: by Hoffa. Joe Pesci sees this as a brilliant move on Russell's part, a way to keep tabs on Hoffa through the Irishman. He breaks it down with Scorsese and the rest of the cast.
3: I well, it was very sharp of uh, the character I played. Oh, Russell. T- Russell. To put him next to you. That was the thing. Yeah. That was the whole move. I mean, this, was, this yeah. guy was... Phew, to yeah. even be thinking that way, he, his character, just figured he's getting a great job. Thank you, Russell. Thank you, Russell. Ba, 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 ba. Next thing, you become like this with him. Oh, you become so close. And when it comes time... Wow. Psh- well, that's the closest thing. Yeah, that's, that's the, the uh, most. Of, that's the most important move. I mean, it's uh, it's a crazy relationship when you think of it. I, I know. They sleep in the same room. Well, and, you have to. I mean, bodyguards. Second like yeah. bodyguard. Twin yeah. beds, and, yeah. and you know, we're yeah. gonna have them out in the next room. Something happens <laughs>
0: yeah.
3: in the hallway. You're gonna have. Them.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Frank becomes president of Teamsters Local 326 in Wilmington, and grows even closer to Hoffa, but he still takes orders from the Buffalinos.
2: And the Teamsters had an unhealthy relationship with the Mafia, nationwide.
1: But that unholy alliance was hidden from the American public. That's until the U.S. Senate proved that there really was an international organized crime syndicate. This was the first time the average American learned the whispers about La Cosa Nostra were true. At the time,
2: we knew there was an Al Capone, we knew there were individual gangs of of mobsters, but the public did not know that we had this organized crime network throughout the entire country until it was exposed by Bobby Kennedy in the McClellan Committee and then afterwards as the Attorney General. In the meantime, there was this
1: organized crime out there that nobody could prove existed. The hearings were a national sensation. Dozens of alleged criminals and their associates were interrogated on live television. And they didn't have the right to remain silent. They had to answer
2: questions or their refusal to answer would be used against them if there was ever a trial. And they were trying to get them on perjury. And they, they were all claiming to be union delegates somewhere. They all gave as their occupation union shop steward, uh, labor leader and it gave the rackets committee the excuse to begin holding investigations into the role of labor in criminal enterprises. And that was a
1: phenomenal thing to watch. For Scorsese, the character of Frank is the perfect illustration of this tense relationship. He's the in-between man, and there's a great
3: deal of love, there's a great deal of support for all of them, together, amongst themselves, and a great deal of trust. And then there's, of course, betrayal.
1: Charlie says Frank's feelings for Hoffa ran deep. Hoffa's family, his
2: two kids, they loved Frank as a part of the family. And that that human element of Frank Sheeran being a part of the Hoffa family and then being ordered to do what he had to do. But he adored Hoffa. Hoffa was his mentor and Hoffa was his return to legitimacy.
1: For the next decade, the Justice Department tries and fails to get Hoffa on racketeering charges, until he finally goes to prison in 1967 for jury tampering and misuse of union funds. But even then, Hoffa refuses to give up his power. Uh, he did a lot of things that were shady
4: and ended up going to jail and then fought to get back the union, so it was a story about his struggle and going from being lauded by presidents to sitting in a jail cell. So it's kind of an interesting story about a man with all that power and how he's brought down and how he tries to come back.
1: Prison doesn't deter Frank's loyalty to Hoffa either. Sharon was on the list of people that could visit Hoffa. And
2: so he continued to be a Hoffa man, even though Hoffa was in jail, Frank did. And he took his his work seriously. He loved the union, he loved it. Jimmy loved the union. Having been trapped into the mob world by killing whispers, his heart wasn't really in that. But most of it was above board. He would visit Hoffa in the prison, and um,
1: and they would plot what was gonna happen next. Before Hoffa goes to prison, Sheeran helps install his replacement, Frank Fitzsimmons. Hoffa thinks Fitz is a pushover, and he'll play nicely in his pocket, even while he's away. Charlie Brandt explains the logic. Frank Fitzsimmons, <laughs> was a
2: a union official on the board of the Teamsters when Hoffa was convicted by Bobby Kennedy's Get Hoffa squad. And Fitzsimmons was a a nobody, a weakling. Uh, He did whatever the mob told him to do. Whatever Russell or anyone told Fitzsimmons to do, he did.
1: All the while, the Irishman keeps taking jobs, embedding himself deeper into the family with every kill. One of those jobs Frank took credit for was the execution of Crazy Joe Gallo. Mr. Gallo, do you have an opening statement? Yeah. This carpet would be great for a crap game. (laughs) Crazy Joe had no problem rocking the boat. This guy was a hothead. He was insubordinate. He was reckless. And he thought he should be running the show. So... This guy orders a hit on his rival, Joe Colombo, at the Italian Unity Day Rally. The balls on Gallo. But Gallo's gunman botches the job. Colombo
2: actually lives seven years, although in a coma. It was what they call a bad hit.
1: That's when the powers that be decided something had to be done.
2: So what kind of punishment should Joe Gallo get? because there are old-timers that don't want this kind of publicity. They don't want these people being shot at, you know. And so it was almost happenstance, but Frank was at the Copacabana nightclub, a famous club in those days, with Russell Buffalino, and in walks crazy Joey Gallo with a bit of an entourage. Gallo shows disrespect toward Buffalino, and uh, he leaves. Sheeran follows him to the only place really that was open at that time, Umberto's Clam House in Little Italy. Sharon enters the Clam House from a rear door, while John Francis, the redhead, drives around the block to pick Frank up after he's done. Frank goes in and kills crazy Joey Gallo. Starts firing, boom, boom, boom. And that cemented uh, Frank's career. He was already a, (laughs) he already had quite a
1: career. Meanwhile, Jimmy Hoffa's in prison, working on a way out, a way back to the top of the Union. So he hammers out a deal with the President of the United States. Nixon had the Teamsters' support for presidency, and
2: Nixon made a deal with Hoffa to pardon Hoffa in exchange for that support. But attached to the pardon was a clause that said that Hoffa couldn't run for Teamsters presidency. He had paid them half a million dollars and was supposed to get a legitimate pardon that would make him free to do whatever he wanted. Instead, he got an illegitimate pardon with restrictions on it that, w- that meant he couldn't run for union office.
1: After he gets out, he realizes the death of the betrayal. Hoffa
2: had been tricked by his enemies in the Teamsters to give up his union job, and so he he needed to start from scratch. He was plotting his return to take back the union from Fitzsimmons, and Frank was indispensable to him.
1: But at this point, the real people in charge trust Fitzsimmons over Hoffa.
2: The mob, uh, particularly uh, Tony Provenzano of uh, New Jersey, they were very happy with Fitzsimmons as the president. They selected him, they put him in, and then he did whatever they told him to. Hoffa, on the other hand, was his own man, and he made threats against the mob. And when I get out of jail and run for the office of presidency, I'm gonna get back at everybody who double-crossed me. I call it uh, uh, scratching the chicken pox. Hoffa was um, so full of rage, that he had been double-crossed by so many, His retirement from the union had been sold to him by Bill Buffalino as a way to get his union back. If he retires, then we can get you back in through the side door. And that wasn't the case. He retired, and
1: they just left him out there. Running out of moves... Hoffa threatens to give the FBI everything they needed to put his old buddies away forever. He was advised not to do that by uh, Frank Sheeran on behalf of Russell
2: Buffalino. Go home and retire, play with your grandkids, but you're not to be in the union anymore.
1: Frank warns Hoffa
2: to
3: no avail. Frank's character finally has to tell Jimmy that uh, there's a serious problem.
1: and has to be addressed. Hoffa refuses to listen. He's defiant and by 1975 the bosses decided he's too much of a liability. Hoff has got to go. To Scorsese, the outcome is inevitable.
3: That world it's a matter yeah, of elimination. That's it. It's got he's to go. in the way. He really in the way. Yeah. Didn't understand. Well, he had a a vision of how things are and he yeah. believed and no, I don't he think did. he ever thought that it was going no. to really happen to him. No, you ever. do it in and you'd you say, no, they would never dare. do it. Mm-hmm. He tried to save you so many, how many times, yeah, yeah, I know right, but, did but you well, wouldn't Jimmy listen. Jimmy didn't well. even know how many times he tried to save him. He didn't yeah. want it and he knew it was on him eventually, you know. Yeah. When it comes so it to really him and him, at a certain point he's got to say, I, we tried everything we, we could. Tried everything. Yeah. You and just that's, that's the life we're in. He has to go. That's
2: it. The only one standing between Hoffa and the grave was Russell Buffalino. He didn't want Hoffa killed. He thought that Hoffa had done a lot of good. But Tony Provenzano had a big beef with Hoffa in prison that carried over afterwards. And so ultimately, those who were on the side of Hoffa lost the debate among the uh, mobsters in New York who ran the commission. They were the ones that needed to be convinced. They claimed they were gonna stay neutral, but they didn't and they weren't. They were out to get Hoffa. Hoffa realizes what's happening, that even Russell Buffalino, his ally, has seemed to turn against him. And uh, it wasn't long after that that Hoffa was killed.
1: Charlie says the commission decided Frank was the only person who could pull this off.
2: That one is uh, almost a no-brainer in that Frank was a terrific hitman. And uh, they knew that Frank could get
1: to Hoffa. He was part of the inner circle of Hoffa, part of Hoffa's family. Taking advantage of that trust, they lure him into a phony meeting with Tony Pro to bury the hatchet.
2: They set up a meeting with Frank, Jimmy Hoffa, and certain other gangsters. And they lure Hoffa to a house in Detroit And as soon as he walks in, he knows something's wrong. There's no noise, there's no nobody drinking anything. And he turns to leave, bumps into Frank Sheeran, who's right behind him,
1: and Sheeran shoots him twice in the head. The way Charlie sees it, Hoffa's disappearance caused more problems than it solved. When
2: they chose to make
1: Hoffa disappear, they exhibited
2: bad judgment because he had disappeared, it became a kidnapping. And that gave the FBI jurisdiction. And immediately, they hired 200 new agents.
1: At first, the public didn't even know that Hoffa had been killed.
2: Initial impact was that he was up to something, Hoffa. That nobody knew where he was, but he knew where he was. That kind of thing had happened once before with a mobster in New York, Joe Bananas. One day, he disappeared. About eight months later, he surfaced as if he'd been nowhere. And so many of us at the time thought, well, Hoffa's going the way Joe Bananas went, and we'll turn up. But of course, his days became weeks, became months, became years, and then certain things leaked out. No plot is foolproof. It was clear that he had mob enemies. Everybody knew that, and now it was clear that they had orchestrated
1: his demise. Now, Russell Buffalino would later confide in Frank that Hoffa's body had been cremated at a funeral parlor not too far from the crime scene. Now, the public had its own theories.
2: Uh, my favorite outlandish theory was that he ended up in an oil drum that was transported to the East Coast. There is nobody in his right mind that would carry any human body across country in an oil drum. Makes absolutely no sense.
1: After seven years of fruitless investigations, the government declares Hoffa legally dead in 1982.
2: It had a cruelty to it in that because that body was gone, the finances of Jimmy Hoffa were not distributed to his family.
1: That's not normally how the family got things done. The difference
2: with the Hoffa case is that Hoffa disappeared. All the other ones were just left on the sidewalk or left in their cars dead. These murders were open and notorious. They sent a message to the other members of this nationwide organization that you've got to play by our rules all the time.
1: For many, there's a somber tragedy in the character of Frank Sheeran. His story isn't glorious. Anna Paquin plays Frank's estranged daughter, Peggy.
0: Bob's performance is quite rare in this genre of film, where even though he's done some truly terrible, despicable things, when you see that
2: old, broken, sick man in his care home, my heart breaks for him.
0: He's made choices that have led him to being that person that has no one left, but it's much more sort of emotionally intense than I think sometimes the genre allows
1: now charlie believes frank never forgave himself he
2: loved jimmy hoffa he loved his work and he took it seriously when he took over a new client let's say a union client he would go to work with the men he took it very seriously he continued to advance and get decent jobs and frank said to me that the death of hoffa was the worst thing that could happen to his career because hoffa was going to the top and was taking him along with him. But he also thinks Frank had no other choice. He said to me, uh, if I ever said no to Russell, Jimmy would have been just as dead and I'd have gone to Australia with him, meaning down under, I'd have been
4: killed. I think what it made people think a lot about the story was the fact that nobody ever found the body. And I think there's that mystery of where did he go and what happened to him and how did he die? Well, we hope our interpretation of it is really what will
1: uh, solve it to some extent. Frank Sheeran died in December 2003. Charlie published I Heard You Paint Houses the following year. The movie is
3: not the real people, and it's, uh, That's it's, right. it's uh, who knows what the story really is. Right. Um, and what you pick up on is the essence of a, the truth of a relationship, right. all three. Who knows what really went on? We don't know. This is a version thereof, so yeah. to speak. But the yes. truth is, the truth is in the relationships, and the truth is in the, in the relationships within that world. You know.
0: The, what's sort of great about the story is that this triangle, these three guys, they, they, uh, it's a classic story about loyalty, about mm-hmm. brotherhood, and mm-hmm. betrayal. But betrayal for a reason that Even people necessity. can understand. Yeah,
3: you
1: know? yeah. On the next episode of Behind the Irishman, we explore the story's journey from page to screen and how Scorsese got De Niro, Pacino, and Pesci together for the first time. This podcast was produced by Netflix with Fannie Co. and Crossroad. I'm Sebastian Maniscalco. Thanks for listening.